personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information the businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show. Um, His name is Tom Cunningham. He is the CEO of Flyover Futures. Welcome. Thank you. How are you doing, Debbie? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Well, this is fun. So uh, you and I met through a mutual friend uh, of ours, Chris Roberts, who I adore. Chris, he yeah. told me he told me about some of the great work that you guys are doing. And then you and I ended up on a call and you were telling me your backstory. And, uh, you know, my, I lit up when I you told me that you were involved with the creation of Tech Republic. Um, yeah which I adored. I mean, it was like my lifeline, uh, especially <laughs> like in the late nineties, you know, when I was doing more, you know, a lot of technical stuff. So, um, and then you explain, and I would love for you to explain to your audience what you're doing now with Flyover Futures, because I think it's really a cool thing. So why, why don't you just tell me a bit about kind of your tech journey and what you're doing right now with uh, Flyover Futures? Um, sure, I'm happy to. Tech Republic was a was an interesting um, experience. The whole thing was was great, but it was founded on the idea that IT professionals and this was more people in the trenches wanted to talk to each other, and um, and so we were trying to build a community of IT pros back in you know the relatively early um, late early stages of the internet, um, you know. Like late nineties. Um, fast forward to today, we built tech Republic here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I raised, I was, I was raised and raised my kids in flyover country. Um, John piles, who was also instrumental in tech Republic, um, very early on also from here. Um, Tony Bowers, our editor in chief from here, Jim McKiernan. So we all grew up here in the Midwest and, we were very cognizant of the fact that innovation and talent drive growth and that there was a ton of innovation going on here in flyover country, that there was amazing world-class talent, but we were doing a terrible job of telling that story to the rest of the world. And there were several inflection points. One was that the coastal cities were pricing themselves out of the market and people were sort of looking for an excuse to move back to flyover country. And we were there saying, hey, there's a ton going on. So we started covering general innovation and realized that a lot of our audience were technical um, senior management and that they wanted the same thing that, that we were talking about in Tech Republic. What they really wanted to do was get expert content and then build communities around that. And, and it turns out that part of the importance of the community is being in flyover country, that um, there's enough of a vibe here and, and being able to drive doesn't hurt in uh, this pandemic era that we're in, um, where people want to get together and that are from the region of the region, 
talent flows a lot more easily within the region. Capital flows a lot more easily within the region. And um, so we're building this community and we're having a blast. And now Chris came in and uh, is helping us a lot on the security side. Um, It's great to engage you. And we're just trying to find the smartest people we can, bring them to our community, let them interact, ask questions, let the community interact and, uh, and keep them engaged. And they're super engaged. That's really cool. Yeah. So for my my listeners, especially the people who are outside of the country, um, you know, uh, flyover country, as we call it, is kind of the Midwest uh, in the U.S. So a lot of uh, a lot of attention gets paid to kind of East Coast, West Coast, not a ton, not enough, in my opinion, uh, on kind of the, the middle region. And I'm a Chicagoan, so I, you know, definitely feel that that that. A situation as well, but right. I think, no. but I, I think something has happened in the favor of the Midwest. And you touched on this a bit. To me, a lot of this is around COVID, right? Where you know a lot of um, before COVID, for example, there were a lot of companies that wanted you to, you know, you had to relocate to some expensive place. Oh yeah. Do some job or yeah. And then, so having companies realize what we've known for decades now that you can actually do stuff remotely uh, and actually embracing that. I think that's helped a lot, but then also, you know, I think it opens up the talent pool because a lot of people have thought about talent in a regional way. Right. So it's like, okay, who, you know, I have this company, let me look at who's kind of around, you know, this particular particular area. And then sort of they they sort of kneecap themselves by trying to kind of stuff everyone into the same, you know, hole, in my opinion. So I think yep. that COVID and remote work and, you know, the internet has has changed that in a way that maybe, you know, I've always wanted that to happen because I never restricted myself to talent in a region, right? I did as much as I could with people, yeah, COVID, smart people. Right. COVID accelerated a lot of things, right? Um, you can argue good and bad. And absolutely, um, I mean, certainly one of the biggest ones is exactly what you're talking about. This acceptance of remote work and how it has made people really rethink their lives, right? I have kids with young kids and, you know, it's, there's been a lot of good things that came from them being home and working remotely. There've been some frustrating things too, but it's definitely changed the way all of us think about work. And right. If I'm in the Midwest, um, I can work anywhere in the world. And, you know, one of the things about flyover country is we export a huge amount of our talent to the coast every year out of our fantastic universities. I mean, you know, Purdue and Michigan State and Carnegie Mellon and, you know, these schools that are turning out top technical talent. And, you know, we need to say to those graduates and to others, stay here. There's tons of opportunity here. I mean, Intel is investing a huge amount of money building a massive chip factory in Ohio that they just announced. That's a big deal. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. COVID accelerated this. Um, and we feel like, you know, we've been doing this now for three years pre-COVID. And so our thesis has been proven out, we think, that the VCs um, on Sand Hill Road weren't going to invest in a company that had more than about a 20-minute drive to a board meeting. 
um, they thought and believed back then that, you know, up close and personal to the company and the founders and the management team made a huge difference. Now they're investing in companies in the Midwest with founders and management teams that they have never met in person. So we're going to move from, you know, almost 90% of the venture money being on, you know, in three or four coastal cities, plus maybe Austin, um, to now them saying, oh, we have a whole world that's opened up that we haven't really looked at that we can. And I think that's going to um, encourage venture funding. And then in the Midwest, we've got kind of venture capital 3.0 happening, which is also interesting. So we're, we're very optimistic. Very cool. Very cool. What what is top of mind that you're hearing, right, for people in the flyover uh, um, future community right now? Like what what's the what's the biggest pain point you think that people are talking about in kind of like tech talent or, you know, whether it be support? You know, what is your what are your thoughts? Yeah, there are a couple different categories um, on the technical side security remains a huge issue and and it's a, and it's a ginormous issue right um and it's surprising how many companies really don't have very good security policies like 40 percent, right um so that keeps a lot of people up at night and and that's everything from you know state actors to phishing attacks um so that's a big thing. Data analytics is a big thing. And how do we turn all this information, all this data into information? Um, and is management looking at the right data? Um, that's a whole separate, uh, separate conversation. I think the tr- tricky thing and the really interesting opportunity is that the job of the CTO or whatever we're going to call uh, that person is changing a lot. And if you look at the people that are CTOs right now um, or whatever, you know, the analog is to that in the organization, um, something like 90% of them came out of development were coders. Um, And if you think about it a decade ago, that made a ton of sense. You wonder now if that, is the path forward because what we're facing now is a lot of things are being outsourced, um, you know, whether it's to manage service providers or the cloud or what have you. And soft skills are becoming super important. And this is something I think that a lot of CEOs understand. A vast majority of them, 70 some odd percent, believe that IT should be more strategic but people aren't implementing it yet, right? But the CTO wants to move out of putting out fires and being more proactive and strategic um, and working with the line of business executives, um, you know, to avail themselves of the best technologies that are the most appropriate for, for the corporate goals. So there's that's also a super interesting topic. Um, you know, behind all of that, AI is also working there. And, um, you know, whether that's machine learning or more advanced AI and the 
quantum computing to drive that is also happening parallel. So we're going to hit some inflection points from a technology standpoint. And the question is, are organizations ready with a leadership team to handle it? And is that leadership team fully integrated with IT? Right, right. Um, So you you touched on something that I want to chat about, and I think there is a parallel here. So one is the the misnomer that you know IT or cyber their role is only reactive, right? So it right. can't be that, right? And then the parallel that I see is in privacy, where privacy has to be proactive. You can't get, you know, once you violate someone's right, you can't unviolate it. You know what I'm saying? So I think there right. are some parallels right. there. What what are your thoughts? Um yeah, the reactive thing is a huge issue. And but if if I think about the typical CTO, I mean, you know, typical is probably not the right word, but um a lot of CTOs that I've encountered in my many years of doing this are hands-on doers. And like I said before, they were coders. So their DNA is we got a problem, I'll fix it right? Because I know how to fix it better than anybody else. Um, And so, you know, there's, there's one aspect of that where we sort of train people how to treat us, right? And if I'm always the person raising my hand saying, oh, no, I'll go do it. It's, I know it's Sunday, but, you know, I can go in and and reboot the servers. Um, People are going to expect that. So that's part of the issue, right? The other issue is I don't think the C-suite has a very thorough understanding of all of the issues that are involved in managing IT. It's a huge job and it's a ginormous responsibility. And if you mess up, you are potentially exposing the entire company, maybe your customers, maybe your vendors um, to a lot of pain. Um, So failure can be catastrophic. Um, You know, meanwhile, people are hounding you about, you know, small things, seemingly small things, um, but that are important to that person and need to get fixed, right? So, yeah, they've got to get out of reactive mode. And again, I think this outsourcing helps some of that um, and more into understanding the financials, understanding what drives the business, understanding what the data points are um, that you can look at to know if you're on track or not, um, knowing where to make more investment where to make less investment. I mean, they see the data. Um, on the on the privacy side, I'll tell you what, man, you're right. Once somebody's rights have been violated, they've been violated. And you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I think the genie's out of the bottle um, to a large extent. Um, certainly as consumers, it is, right? Mm-hmm. I think that business businesses still have an opportunity to establish policies um, that ensure privacy of data. Um, And I think actually looking down the road, blockchain is going to help us own our own data and see who has access to it. Um, So it's, it's a big issue, but we, I mean, we live in a surveillance state to a large extent, right? 
everybody's got all of our data about everything. Um, right. It's kind of it's astounding. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, I, I love to talk to you about kind of board level uh, visibility to kind of IT and cyber. Um, so there aren't enough, in my opinion, uh, boards thinking about, you know, and this goes back to this reactive thing again, too. So uh, there are a lot of organizations and, and, and a lot has changed and you're probably the perfect person to talk to about this, right? So we, in the beginning, when people started to develop you know, IT systems and, you know, get more into, you know, the internet and stuff like that. They thought, okay, I do, so let's say a hardware store or, or a law firms, throw that in there. So, okay, I have, I hire smart people, we're lawyers, and then we're going to implement this technology to help us do lawyering, right? So it was kind right. of like an add-on, right? And then what happened is that the technology has become so ubiquitous and so fundamental to how companies do business. It's like, you can't be a lawyer. You can't do your job without technology. So I think that's the change that happened that people aren't really thinking about. So I don't think that initially when people started using IT systems, they didn't think about it becoming this kind of all encompassing thing where they just can't, they literally can't do their business if they, don't find a way to kind of embrace technology and be able to do it in a secure fashion. What are your thoughts? Yes, technology is ubiquitous. Um, and we are all connected to each other and to everything. And so, you know, you, I mean, when we started Tech Republic, we were an internet company. That was a distinct thing, right? Um now every company is an internet company and you know, it's, it's, it's totally changed. I mean, we used to have, I was explaining to people still in the late nineties, what the internet was. Now imagine me, I'm not a technical person. It was a pretty sorry conversation, but anyway, um, I think that part of the problem is the reality that boards aren't as engaged as we would like them to be, or as we think they are. Um, and board members are typically involved in lots of other businesses in one way or another, and they are not thinking through the problems. What the board is doing is, is managing senior management who they trust, right? And deferring to them on a lot of decisions. Um, and that's just, that is, been my experience right there's generally one or two really engaged board members um and that's just the reality of it right so i think that one of the missing links in this is the ceo and the cfo right um and we're trying to explore ways to get the rest of the c-suite involved um in in explaining to the board, explaining to shareholders, stakeholders, whatever it is, whatever it is, what the issues are, how they're prioritizing it, and how they're going to go about fixing them. Um, so we we have to. You know, it's interesting in in marketing. You know, if you survey people, their answers are generally aspirational. If you track people, it's not following what they say they would do on a survey, right? 
you don't eat healthy vegetables every day. We've been watching you. Right? You're eating Cheetos. Um, <laughs> so, so what we have to do is we have to close this gap between CEOs who say that um, their CTO should be more strategic, right? And making them more strategic. Um, so, so I think the other, the other approach is getting more mind share from, of the CEO at a, at a more granular level than most CEOs like to operate. Right. If that makes sense and really sitting down with them and saying, okay, here are the consequences of not doing these things. And they're non-trivial. And it's one of the situations where, you know, yes, the odds are slim, but if you hit a Royal flush, it's going to bring down the company. Right. Um, and then you've got this whole issue also of employees. And, you know, from a security standpoint, that's your biggest problem, right? And so how do you incent employees? How do you make employees understand that this is a priority, that following these security protocols is a priority? Well, the C-suite has to do it, right? I mean, people do what their superiors do, not what they say. Um so again, a lot of this starts at the very top. And, you know, part of it, I mean, I, I was joking. We had a Slack uh, event with Chris the other day. And um, I said, you know, our, our, our only security rule is that I have access to nothing. I'm an administrator on zero accounts, right? <laughs> and, um, and everybody started laughing about CEOs and the C-suite and how they demand access to everything. And they're, they're the worst, right? Um, so. I think that CEOs and CFOs and, and the rest of the C-suite got to sit down and start getting engaged in some of these issues um, and tossing around things like AI and, and not really fully understanding what that means, what the implications are. Um, well, I, I want to talk a bit about funding for different projects. And so this is, you, you tell me what you're hearing and I'll tell you what I think is happening now, what I'm seeing. So, uh, and this is related to privacy. So like now we have all this privacy tech, right? Where right. organizations want to be able to implement this stuff. And a lot of times that is, you know, maybe the privacy person or the privacy folks, maybe lawyers involved where they say, okay, we have this tech that we want to be able to use, but a lot of times that the budget for that, especially if it's something that actually touches data, comes out of the the cyber IT side of the house, right? So there has to be kind of communication there and there has to be some uh, collaboration because the lawyer may not understand the technical ins and outs of what a certain technology may be doing and maybe it doesn't even answer the question or solve the problem that a company has. Have you seen kind of that scenario play out with people? Yeah. And I think it gets back to what we were talking about before about IT being siloed, right? I mean, this isn't an IT issue, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a corporate issue and it's not even just a corporate issue. It's every employee, every vendor, right? Potentially every customer. So, 
this is the shift that needs to happen, right? Is that the CEO, the C-suite need to understand security is a corporate priority. We need to fund it. We need to understand it. We need to incent our employees to follow whatever protocols we're going to establish. Um, and no, this is not just, you know, buying a software license, right? Um, and it, and it, then it flows through to, to everything, right? Then it flows through to marketing and, you know, your CMO and how are they handling customer data and what kind of data are they collecting and, you know, that, that, on down the road. So, yes, this has to be something that gets pulled out of this assignment to IT, raised up to this is a corporate issue that is important. Um, and then make a commitment to to being the best, you know, the best in class. Exactly, exactly. What what challenges are you seeing? So I, I don't know. I think I felt feel like the way things have traditionally progressed is like, okay, privacy is somebody else's problem. And so now it's going from somebody else's problem to people saying almost like cybersecurity. Like they say, well, it's it's sort of every it is everyone's problem, right? Everyone has a part to play, but in a way. If you say it's everyone's problem, it's like no one's specific responsibility. <laughs> well, and right. <laughs> I know, totally. And, you know, this is part of the, the challenge we have in a, in a distributed world, right? Um, so, on one hand, yes, if employees are not following protocols, we're not going to be very secure. It's almost impossible. Um, on the other hand, um, then we have to figure out a way to incent employees to do that. That becomes our problem, right? It's like, if you don't understand what I'm saying, then I need to figure out a different way to say it, right? It's kind of always my view. It's incumbent upon the messenger to deliver a message that is heard. And a lot of times, you know, if no one in the company is complying, which is typically the case, including the C-suite, then then we need to change the message, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's a very tricky thing, right? To what extent is management, including the CTO, responsible for security? And then to a certain extent, it seems sort of like a Sisyphean task because now I've got to go audit everybody I'm connected to in the world because they're all a source of vulnerability or I've got to build really strong firewalls. Um, so it's both, right? And this is, again, in a distributed world. Individuals have responsibilities and organizations um, that those individuals are affiliated with have responsibilities. I think ultimately people are going to have a lot more control over their data, like I said, through blockchain or something very similar. But we may be, I don't know, 10 years away from that. Yeah, right. I'm, I am, I am, you know, uh, someone said a long time ago that blockchain was a technology that was looking for kind of a use, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I feel like I see some really cool things happening in the identity space. 
you know, yes, around authentication totally. and blockchain, I think it would be really, really cool. And I've seen, you know, I think that that will have some traction and that will definitely help in the future. Um, so, yeah. T- tell me, what, what are you concerned about just in general uh, about privacy? What's happening in the world? Like what's what's on the horizon that you're saying? You're like, I don't like that. Or, I, you know, I'm concerned about this, this thing that's developing. What am I concerned about? Um, I think I think I'm concerned about state actors having access to so much data and what the temptations to, are to do with that data if you're in power. I mean, that's one thing. Um, there's some very interesting questions around employer-employee surveillance, right? Um, that Absolutely. I think are a little, that I think are a little troublesome, right? So, what bothers me the most is that large organizations have a huge advantage in this data-driven world, and large organizations oftentimes don't really care about individuals as much as they care about the large organization, right? It's just the nature of the beast. Um, And so my worry is that a very few players in the private sector and government and then government and these players cooperating with each other puts a lot of power in a very few hands. And in my experience with technology people, technologists, is that they're very enamored of the technology, but often slow to catch on what the implications down the road of that technology might be, right? So it's like, we can build this. It would be so cool. And yeah, if it were in a few hands, it would be really cool. And if it stopped right there, it might be really cool, but it's going to continue to grow and it's continue to be used by broader and broader groups of people. And it might not be so cool five years from now. So that worries me some, but, but it's really about a few large organizations really having so much data at such a granular level that, you know, our, our ability to be manipulated will be huge Yeah, or their ability to manipulate us. I think that's it's true. Little, it's a little, <laughs> I, know, it's I was going to say a little dystopian or something, but it just, it's, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, I, I've studied a lot of history and power mm-hmm. does not like giving up power. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is people taking technology that was used for one purpose and using it for another purpose and not really understanding the implications of that. So, you know, an example, let's say for some, uh, this is a great example. Let's say, there was a company that developed the technology for marketing, right? And they said, okay, we think 90% of people like blue pants, you know, so now we're going to sell blue pants or whatever. So they take, they repurpose that technology into a system that maybe is creating databases of potential criminals or something, like a facial recognition database. They'll say, well, 80% of the people in this database are fine, but the other 30% are criminals or something like that. You know, it's like, 
you know, it can't be a situation where you walk away from that, that and say it's okay to harm 30% of anyone, <laughs> you know? Well, again, you know, you look at very large organizations and individuals are not consequential, right? So kind of, I think what you were partly saying is, is that no one cares about the people that don't fall into the bucket that we're trying to get, right? Or imagine that someone did an algorithm. They said, you know, we found something interesting that 80% of criminals carry blue pens. So now we're going to track everyone that carries a blue pen, right? Well, I just may be a law-abiding blue pen lover, right? And now I'm part of a set of potential criminals that's being, you know, but that's the way big data works, right? It wouldn't be probably the 20%, but, you know, 87% of these guys are carrying blue pens. So let's tra let's track them all. Um, so, right. People become atomized, their data points. And, and you know, you and I both worked in that world where we're, where it's really easy to shift gears, right? It's like, okay, I, you know, I only care about these 3% and everybody else I don't really care about. And as long as I can get that 3%, I'll do anything to get that. And, and so I think that, you know, we need to keep individual human beings in mind as we move forward with this technology and, and this gets back to the large organizations. That's almost impossible for large organizations, right? You come in and you say, well, you can't do this because, you know, I know six people that will be harmed by this. I'm like, okay, look, dude, we're dealing with hundreds of millions of people, six people. Sorry. Doesn't even make the report. Right. Yeah. It's concerning. It's concerning. So I always try to bring in the, the human element of things because we are dealing with data of humans. Right. And so it can't be. Yeah. Ultimately. Right. It's yeah. We're all people. Right. <laughs> so you can't just create a statistic. And, you know, if someone doesn't fit in the box, like, you know, I don't neatly fit in anyone's box. Right. So a lot of times they try to jam you into something that doesn't fit for you. And that could possibly be create a harm in and of itself. Right. Well, and if you're not in that box, you're you're a suspicious outlier, right? right? Like, hmm, this requires more scrutiny. Here's somebody that doesn't fit in our box, right? right? And fortunately, <laughs> you know, my whole life has has been spent without with those kinds of people, right? Entrepreneurs don't fit in a box. No matter what color, sex, race, none of, none of that matters. If you're an entrepreneur, you're typically not going to fit in anybody's box, right? Look at your background; it's really very right. You don't fit in a box, no, right? It's, <laughs> So, so, right. And the data people want to create boxes and define people by the box they're in. And when we think about that personally, it's very bothersome. But when you think about it abstractly, you go, well, that's just the way the world works. I mean, a lot of people are just kind of giving up. And I think that's super important. I agree too. I think the agency is key, you know. So I saw a statistic from uh, the Fido Alliance, Fast ID Online Alliance, and they right. said that the average person has 90 
logins and passwords. And I'm like, that's not sustainable. You know, it's like, oh, we're only getting more stuff. So we, the more stuff we have, the more we have to secure. So it has to turn to kind of more individual centric agency over their data. So I think people should be like a bank, right? Where they pick and choose what technologies or what things kind of connect to their identity and how much that they share as opposed to them creating, you know, no one's going to read 80 page privacy policies from like 90 different companies. This is not going to happen. Right. No. Um, yeah. I mean, what, so what do you think about the biometric stuff? Oh, wow. Biometrics is so frightening. It's so scary. Right? And, and I'm so concerned. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I am as a black woman, you know, I follow this very closely. So there are statistics to say that yeah, biometric right. systems misidentify Black women, uh, you know, 10 or more times that of other people. And I'm very concerned about that. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. You know, that doesn't impact other people as much as it impacts me. And I'm concerned about that, especially people who don't have a voice, don't have, you know, means right to be able to sort of fight their way out of a situation like someone says okay you robbed this bank how do you get out of that if they think you know right we think this is you oh my god no can you imagine that nightmare terrible no well and then think globally right um but you know london has cameras everywhere Beijing has cameras everywhere. Um, and I, we do in the States too, right? Um, but I feel like we're going to move to more biometric, whether that's iris scanning, fingerprinting, whatever it is, chip implanting, which right. <laughs> is, is not, you know, a conspiracy theory. No, um, it's not. Right. So, so biometric, I think what's going to happen is we're going to start relying a lot more on biometrics. Yeah. And well, then you say, well, then my body is my password. And at that point, people might really start thinking, well, then I should own my own data. Right. Right. I mean, I think that. I think that one of the one of the things that's come out of the last couple of years with the pandemic has been people's realization that that they need to take responsibility for a lot of things, and one of them is their data. Right. So I feel like people are starting to kind of realize this is a big thing and it's important, and they need to do it. Um, both as consumers and as citizens. And so I, I, it, I, I see that accelerating and I see the technology happening that will enable that. Yeah. I don't think the technology is stopping. So I'm not naive enough to think that it's going to stop. Right. So I want to be involved in those conversations about what's happening with that. And then also I have issues when, you know, technology that, that you know, isn't as accurate as being used in kind of high stakes situations, right? So I don't think yes, you should use Huge. a thing on a video camera 
to say, okay, this is this person, let's put them in jail. And that's actually happened to people when they basically had to fight their way out of it. They're like, okay, I wasn't actually there. This isn't me. You know, like a judge may not be able to tell that, you know, this is not this person. And it's like, you basically, you know, to me, you're, you're I, totally throwing the, the rules of evidence out the way. They have to be like other corroborating information. You know, it can't look, be a single I, source of truth. I am trying really hard to not be dystopian, right? I agree with you. There's <laughs> some, I mean, don't get me going, but yeah, there's some super, super worrisome things that are happening as we speak the technology is enabling and, you know, it's interesting. It moves kind of back to when, when you were talking about, you know, who's really responsible for security. Well, it's everybody and it's nobody. Well, your honor, the technology says that it was Tom Cottingham. Right. But he's the guy that did that. I mean, it wasn't me. Right. The algorithm, the algorithm did it. Right. And it's like the judge doesn't say, well, what I'd really like to know is I like the development team that developed the algorithm in here. And I want to cross-examine those people because they had a big influence on how that algorithm made its final conclusion. Right. So, I mean, and I think that's kind of happening as people are saying, well, no, the data says this, the algorithm, you know, it said that this was the guilty person, not, you know, Hey, I'm just, well, right. So anyway, we'll stay optimistic. It's a beautiful day. out. <laughs> I love the way you're thinking. It's a huge problem, right? A huge problem, especially if people are thinking of it as kind of a single source of truth. And then, I don't know, I think, I feel like we have a problem with biometrics and technologies like this because we watch too many movies, right? So right. we watch movies and, and, and people get the idea that technology is perfect. You know, we aren't perfect. We make technology. Technology is not perfect. So yeah, what we, was that? What was that movie? Movie when Bruce Willis? Oh, yeah, he, he bought somebody else's eye, right? Because they were using <laughs> iris scans. No, there was like a black market in eyeballs. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Was it so Fifth anyway, Element? Yeah. The Fifth Element, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, but I was thinking about movies, that, and that always struck me as, yeah. There will be people that will sell an eyeball for a certain amount of money. Why not? Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Anything. I don't use this figure that often. You know, here, <laughs> you want my finger? Um, no, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. It um, is crazy. It is and, crazy. And that's been the great irony of, you know, the personal computer and then the internet. And what it's really done is it's given large organizations a huge amount of power. And right. The, the question is, will people, and some of that's getting decentralized. That's what right. Bitcoin's about, right? Mm-hmm. If it were the world, according to you, what would be your wish for, you know, privacy, technology, cyber? What, what do you really want to happen in the world now as it relates to kind of technology and, and your space and the things that you're working on? I think we need to find new ways to attract people of a variety of backgrounds into what we're calling IT, right? In other words, I'm hearing more and more that we have technical people, but they don't really know how the sausage is made. And we got a bunch of people down there making sausage and they don't even know 
what the possibilities are from a technology standpoint. So they don't come to us and say, hey, you know, if you build a widget like this, it would save us, you know, three cents a sausage or anything. They don't know how hard it is to build a widget. They don't want to ask a stupid question. But it's hard to find people that have, you know, graduated from top university with a computer science degree who want to go spend a couple of years watching how sausage is made and figuring out how technology can make that process better, right? And we get back to, we have a lot of people right now whose background is coding. And part of me thinks that we should be bringing in people from the humanities, people from finance, people from marketing and saying, look, here's the tech stack you need to know. And you don't need to know the whole tech stack. You just need to know the top 20% of it, right? You need to know enough to know who knows what they're talking about, right? Um, because, you know, right now we're taking technologists and trying to give them those skills. And, and so I think that we, I just think we need to really rethink who's making technology decisions and choices in our society, right? Um, so that would be a big one. And the other one would be that whether it's blockchain or a different technology that, that individuals start to take more control over their data. That's, that's amazing. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I know the audience really liked it. Thank you.